Most of you know that we lived for a decade in Germany and that uh, all of our children were actually born there. Um, while they were raised there as little children, for a few months in one case, for eight years in another, their parenting was still undoubtedly from an American perspective. All of the defaults of their parents were from either particular families that they came from or from the cultural background that we came from. And sometimes it was difficult to know the difference. However, one conversation that I had in the early 2000s confirmed that how we parented was not typical compared to most German families. One summer evening, our children were uh, long in bed, and uh, one of our friends, Hans, who was over 70 at the time, said to me, Mike, I've noticed that whenever you reprimand your kids, you do it differently than the ways that we're accustomed to. My curiosity was piqued. He said, I noticed that whenever you reprimand them, you don't yell at them, shaming them in front of others. He said, you often kneel down to them, eyeball to eyeball at their level, when you speak to them, and at times you take them into another room. You do it in private. Little did he know that sometimes the privacy was an indication of other parenting methods. <laughs> our typical uh, line to our children when in a social or public setting was, uh, do we need to go have a talk? And they knew what that meant. But his words were nonetheless affirming. And we began to notice how truly contrasting what we did as a default was in comparison to most others. As our children have grown older, the number of private conversations that we've had with them uh, have declined for several reasons. But truth be told, there are occasions in which I have a personal conversation with one of our children that is in a rather public area. That is to say, other people can hear the conversation if they want to. They can eavesdrop. If you've been in our home, and a good number of you have, we have a rather high ceiling in the family room. And there's kind of a walking bridge that goes across the two sections upstairs with bedrooms on each side. And all that means that conversations in the family room are quite public. Conversations with one person are easily overheard, eavesdropped on, we might say, by multiple other people. And to be honest, most of the time I don't mind that much. Because whatever wisdom, whatever warning I'm sharing with one child, I'm happy for all of them to hear. It applies to them too. In many ways, that's what's happening right here in 2 Corinthians chapter 8. Paul's having a conversation as a spiritual parent to his spiritual children, the Corinthian believers, but you and I are listening in on it too. And truth be told, that's what God intends. God wants us to eavesdrop on this ancient conversation so that we might respond in similar ways in our contemporary setting. Paul may not be talking directly to us. After all, he wrote to the Corinthians. But he's talking to us in terms of relevance. Because financial stewardship, the call to generosity, is something that believers, that churches, never outgrow, and that includes us today. Turn in your Bibles, if you would, to 2 Corinthians chapter 8. 2 Corinthians chapter 8, we're in a series called Transparent from chapter 6 to chapter 9. 
Hopefully you brought a Bible with you. If you didn't, our host would be glad to put one in your hand as a loan if you have a Bible at home or for keeps. If you don't, this is our gift to you. We want you to read that as God's word. 2 Corinthians chapter 8, if you get one of those Bibles, it's on page 939 there, and you can find it rather quickly. 2 Corinthians chapter 8, verse 1, where we see an emphasis on the grace of God, continues to the end of that passage, 2 Corinthians chapter 8, verse 7, where the grace of God is highlighted again. That was our passage last week. And here's the last verse there. But since you excel in everything, verse 7, in faith, in speech, in knowledge, in complete earnestness, and in the love we have kindled in you, see also that you excel in this grace of giving. Grace has an otherworldly power, Paul is saying, but it has a very thisworldly effect. Grace, if we understand it correctly, produces fruit. And one of the fruit of grace is generosity. Put another way, in his outstanding book, Stratton referred to it in the video, The Treasure Principle by Randy Alcorn. If you don't have this, you absolutely ought to get it. Um, We'll try to have some copies available in the coming weeks. A tremendous resource about what it means to have a heart of grace in light of what God has done for us. Randy Alcorn writes, as thunder follows lightning, giving follows grace. When God's grace touches you, you can't help but respond with generous giving. Generosity is a telltale sign of someone who's experienced grace. We're going to begin this morning at verse 8. I'd invite you to stand in your copy of the scriptures. We're going to read to verse 15 and honor God even with our posture this morning. Verse 8 reads from the New International Version. I'm not commanding you, Paul writes, but I want to test the sincerity of your love by comparing it with the earnestness of others. For you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, yet for your sake he became poor, so that you, through his poverty, might become rich. And here is my judgment about what is best for you in this matter. Last year you were the first not only to give, but also to have the desire to do so. Now finish the work, so that your eager willingness to do it may be matched by your completion of it, according to your means." For if the willingness is there, the gift is acceptable according to what one has, not according to what one does not have. Our desire is not that others might be relieved while you are hard-pressed, but that there might be equality. At the present time, your plenty will supply what they need, so that in turn their plenty will supply what you need. The goal is equality, as it is written. The one who gathered much did not have too much, and the one who gathered little did not have too little. Thanks for honoring God's word in that way. You may have a seat. And if you get a copy of the worship program, I hope you do as you come in. The first point we see in your outline is examples for inspiring generosity. Paul has called the Corinthian believers to excel now also in this grace of giving. And Paul includes two examples to incentivize, to motivate, to inspire them to this kind of generosity. And he makes clear, very interesting verse 8, from the beginning that he's not commanding them. Why? He's not saying that God says you must, as if it's a divine directive. If you know a little bit about other parts of the New Testament, in the book previous here, 1 Corinthians, same recipients, 
Paul uses this kind of language in chapter 7. There he writes about singleness, marriage, by implication, divorce, sexuality. And at one point he says, I say not the Lord. Not that it's not true, but this is not a divine directive. This is godly counsel. And that's what Paul is doing here. Paul's not saying, you must. But neither is he saying, you can. He's saying, you should. And then he gives two examples as to why. Not a command, not a suggestion, but a recommendation and a hearty one at that. If you're a parent, we do this all the time. We urge our children to behave, to respond, to act in a certain way, but we stop short of requiring it. The reason is obvious because our greatest delight as parents is to have our children voluntarily, of their own accord, choose the path that is best and usually one that conforms to what we would like. I have to remind my wife of this on occasion. My wife, if you know her, has a certain way of communicating with our kids that is both kind and pointed. It's said in a very respectful way. It's said in an appropriate tone, but it's very clear what she wants them to do. Maybe it's a mom thing. I know and they know what the desired response truly is. In fact, it's so obvious that on occasion I pull her aside and I say, so are you asking them to do that or are you telling them to do that? Is that a command or is that a recommendation? Do they have a choice? Many of you parents, again, moms are specialists, know exactly what I'm talking about. For the Corinthians here, they have a choice. But they also know that Paul's not neutral. He's not ambivalent. He's not indifferent to the choice that they make. If you're uh, familiar with another part of the New Testament, you'll know that this isn't the only time that Paul speaks in this way either. Over in the book of Philemon, one little chapter toward the end of the New Testament, Paul speaks in this way. He's writing to a man named Philemon about a person they both know named Onesimus. Onesimus is a Uh, a servant, a, a former slave. And Paul is writing to Philemon to say, he is one of us, he's a brother, and therefore the way that you treat him and his usefulness to us matters. I'm not telling you you have to, I'm saying you should in light of what you know. He doesn't command, but he urges One writer says, Paul does not command here, but he invites, he encourages. He lays out divine principles gleaned from Scripture. He hopes that they, the Corinthians, will respond out of hearts that have been, and I love this phrase, freed by the gospel and fired by God's grace. You think of a warm fire that kindles response. That's what the grace of the gospel of God does. And so Paul's quite correct here. This is a test of their love for him and for those in need. First thing he does here is he highlights the other church or churches up in Macedonia. He says, I want to compare your earnestness, Corinthians, with what you already know about the Macedonians. And if you look back at the first five verses of chapter 8, 2 Corinthians 8, Paul outlines this exemplary description of the Macedonians. That they were poor, but they gave with joyful hearts in the midst of deep affliction and poverty. And they did so with joy because they realized they were not only giving to need, but they were giving to God. 
You might read that at first, and then Paul's directive or his urging in verse 8, and you might find it a bit manipulative, a bit coercive. You might become cynical. How can Paul do that? But we do it all the time. It's called persuasion. Listen to yourself sometime. We are all, almost all the time, seeking to persuade other people how they should think and how they should act based upon what we think is right. And we use facts and experiences and reason and comparison and sometimes their very self-interest to persuade them of how we see things. I always found it very amusing when we lived in Berlin that some parents there, many of them in fact, would tell us with a kind of air of enlightenment that they were not going to tell their children what to believe or how to act or how to live. They were going to give their children full freedom. Beautiful theory. But just a little bit of observation undermined their claim to do that. Because they still scolded their kids when they were fighting or when they were stealing. They still warned their kids about most religious ideas. We were in Berlin after all. They still felt betrayed when their child lied to them. See, every parent has a hope, every parent has an expectation for how their children are going to live and act and believe. It's just whether we deny we do or not. The question is, will we submit to the design God has for us and the, the reality of human nature, or will we live in some kind of fantasy world? Paul wants to spur on the Corinthians here to a glad response, in part based upon the comparison to the Macedonians. These Corinthians, relatively well-off financially, had already collected a, a sum of money to be sent to the Jerusalem believers. But in the meantime, the Macedonians, poor, living up-country there in modern-day Greece, had leapfrogged the Corinthians in generosity, despite their poverty. So the Corinthians were quick out of the gate with their desire and their first deposit, but the Macedonians had passed them up. Paul says to the Corinthians, hey, they passed you by. Time to kick it into a higher gear. Time to finish what you started. His second example, verse 9, is even more profound. We read there, our Lord Jesus Christ, though he was rich, yet for your sake he became poor, so that you, through his poverty, might become rich. This is the gospel in brief. This is like 2 Corinthians 5.21, Pastor Zach preached on it a couple weeks ago. This is the gospel in summary form. Jesus, existing as the Son of God from eternity past, now has taken on flesh with all of its limitations, with all of its frustrations to identify with us. That's poverty in and of itself. And we would know that if we had known what he had before. Not only that, but after about 33 years of life in this terrible travesty of injustice... Jesus was crucified like a common criminal in order to take our sin punishment so that we wouldn't have to. That's an even greater poverty. We could say it like this. Paul says that Christ took your bankruptcy-sized spiritual debt in order to give you a lottery-sized spiritual deposit. You are rich. And if you, then and now, have received the gift of Jesus Christ in repentance and faith, you have hit the jackpot. That's what Paul says. 
Paul also knows, and he shows, that if we're going to call people to the extravagant giving of their resources, we need to call them first to embrace the gospel and its implications. We need to come face-to-face with grace. Because we've become the beneficiaries of this unmerited, undeserved favor of God. In light of Christ's sacrifice, no one can honestly say, I'm poor. And if that's true, Paul implies here, then how can you Corinthians shut your hearts, shut your purses and wallets to the needs of others? And by the way, Paul's not the only one who says this. We read in several other places in the New Testament a common theme. Here's what James says. James 2.14, What good is it, my brothers, if someone claims to have faith but has no deeds? Can such faith save them? Suppose a brother or sister is without clothes and daily food. If one of you says to them, go in peace, keep warm and well fed, but does nothing about their physical needs, what good is it? In the same way, faith by itself, if it is not accompanied by action, is dead. John. In one of his letters, 1 John chapter 3, verse 16, says something similar. This is how we know what love is. Jesus Christ laid down his life for us. And we ought to lay down our lives for our brothers and sisters. If anyone has material possessions and sees a brother or sister in need but has no pity on them, how can the love of God be in that person? Wow. Dear children, he writes, let us love n- not with words or speech, but with actions and in truth. The point here is that God's lavish gift of his grace, that the sacrifice of Jesus Christ inspires believers to be generous in our giving to others. And it's not a case of our bank account being the determinative factor. David Garland says those who are disinclined to be generous when they're poor are not likely to suddenly be generous when they're rich. Alert for young and middle-aged adults. Don't think, at some point, I will become generous. Probably not, unless you begin now. Giving is related to the grace of God experienced in Christ. Paul's saying here that this comparison to the Macedonians has some value, but the sacrifice of Jesus Christ has the ultimate value in inspiring you Corinthians to generosity. Realize what you have. It's grounded in the gospel. We not only obey God in generosity, but we honor him because we honor his family. And it benefits those who belong. Second point, an exhortation to express generosity. Verses 10 and 11. Now Paul's ready to counsel them what they should do. And and Paul gets candid. He gets pointed here. This is as close to a direct imperative as Paul gets in these chapters. But this is actually the reason why he writes. And he writes in a sensitive but bold tone. He urges them to act, but he doesn't mandate them to act. He's not speaking as if he's God, but he's also not speaking as if he's a peer. He speaks to them as a spiritual parent. Even sounds like one. Look there. And here is my judgment about what is best for you in this matter. In other words, here's what I think you should do. I know your heart, I know what you've already done, which is kind of how we parents speak to our children all the time, don't we? Whether it's school or extracurricular activities, we say things like, we know what you're capable of. We know what what we want the outcome to be and think you want that too. Now here's what you need to do. We're saying this all the time, aren't we parents? 
finish the work, as you complete that commitment, you honor your effort and our desire. We'll be so proud of you if you do. There's actually another thing that Paul is communicating here, and that is that good intentions are not enough. They're good, but they don't suffice. And if you're married, you know this full well. If you're a husband, you know this really well. So how do these statements go over in your marriage? I was hoping to mow the lawn, but there was this can't-miss game between two top ten teams, and I just didn't get around to it. I, I wanted to save some more money, but you got to understand, the deal was so good, I, I had to spend it all. Honey, I thought about getting you flowers, but, but the line was just too long, and so I came home. I wanted to arrange a date for us, concert, dinner, the whole works, but I waited too long and they were sold out. I really desired to write you a card, but I was too tired and I hadn't bought the card in time. Now, in a few situations with remarkable wives, you might get an, oh, that was so nice of you to think about that or to want to do it, but most of the time, those ideas are not going to get a lot of reward or much gratitude. Several of us pastors were together with a couple elders earlier this week. Pastor Dave Nicodemus humorously observed when looking at this. He said, it's not only about the intention. It's really not the thought that counts. Now, whether he was speaking from relational experience or just personal wisdom, I don't know. But he was parroting what Paul said here. Intentions are one thing. Follow through is another. However eager you are, Corinthians, let's follow through. For a number of months, I've felt this in a personal way. Most of you know that I love playing ball sports, especially basketball, but for the past year or so, I have not played much basketball. I've not done much of anything, truth be told, when it comes to physical exercise. And so foolishly, I announced to the family a number of months ago that I intended to get a Planet Fitness membership located just a bit down from our offices. And I was going to do so on October 1. And they all thought that was great and needed. In fact, several of our children offered to accompany me to come to join in the fun and to help their dad stay fit. Needless to say, that membership has not yet been purchased. And I drive by there multiple times every day. Good intentions are not enough. See, to benefit from exercise, you've got to do it. Now, having said that, I want to make clear, I'm not looking for more accountability partners on that. <laughs> I have five in my family, and that's plenty. You get the point. All of this brings the reality of life into sharp focus. Pastor Dan Green in that same gathering said, the longer you wait to fulfill an intention, the harder it gets. Isn't that true? And Paul knew that. So Paul was reminding the Corinthians about their opportunity, about their ori original intentions to give and their start. This has all kinds of implications for life as a follower of Jesus. And not just in terms of generosity. As George Guthrie writes, Paul's words remind us here that a great deal of ministry involves challenging people to align their expressed desires with their actions. Any number of dynamics can cause a stall in moving from the first desires to the second 
actions. Laziness, excuses, procrastination, confusion over how to proceed. All that to say that, that acting or not acting on what you know to be right ends up a spiritual problem. And, and pastors are called to shepherd people to be doers of the word. And the very best way we can is by being doers ourselves. Example matters. Paul finishes that verse, verse 11, with the important phrase, according to your means, which leads to a key, the third point, a principle for assessing generosity. Here's the point. God doesn't assess us based upon some impossible standard that we can't meet. In terms of our obedience, in terms of this case, generosity, God evaluates us based upon what we have. It's our capacity that matters. It's our ability that matters. To put it bluntly, God's not looking for a $75,000 gift from a young individual who makes $50,000 a year. God knows our capacity. In the same way, God's not all that impressed with a $500 gift from a multi-million dollar couple later in life. God looks at percentages, looks at other obligations, looks at level of sacrifice far more than God looks at dollar amounts and, and what other people think. God wants to know what are your priorities. God wants to know where our treasure is. We can fool everyone else. We can even fool ourselves, but we can never fool God. I find it very significant here that Paul doesn't ask the Corinthians to do what the Macedonians had done, to go beyond their means. He says, I want you to give according to your means. Remember the Macedonians, of them Paul wrote, they gave even beyond what they were capable of or what they were able to. This is the language of deep sacrifice. This is what they pursued with joy. For the Corinthians, Paul just said to them, Give according to what you're able. This is the language of generosity. These kind of gifts are acceptable to God. These are beneficial for others. And by the way, that principle remains with us today. According to what you are able. Paul gets personal here. That the challenge doesn't change much over 2,000 years between Corinth and Columbus. These are pointed. Pastor John MacArthur on the West Coast, he wrote, there are a few topics in the church more sensitive than that of money. Amen? Any mention of giving, contributions, or fundraising campaigns is sure to be perceived by some as inappropriate, intrusive, even offensive. In fact, I'm sure there are a few here thinking, I can't believe he's talking about money. I mean, even if it's in the Bible. That's why any time that we teach or talk about money, we need to stand on what the Bible says. The Bible talks about proportional giving. It talks about a joyful heart. It talks about gospel causes. It talks about caring for your spiritual family. It talks about knowing that all of our assets, as Stratton and Emily said, are from God. They belong to him. That's a great framework. And it's a liberating one, too. What's the practical purpose of that kind of generosity? Last point. Why do we give? Why do we give for cross-cultural opportunities? Why do we give to and through the local church? Why do we give to other people? Paul answers these questions, especially the cross-cultural one and the compassionate sharing of finances to other people. Remember the context here. Let's back out just a moment. There are believers in Jerusalem and Judea, hundreds of miles away, that are facing economic difficulty. Part of it was the culture they, they lived in. Part of it might have been some kind of circumstances, whether there was famine or drought. 
part of it was probably the fact that they were Jewish followers of Jesus. And when all the other Jews heard about this Jesus guy, they said, we don't believe in him. He's not the Messiah. What are you doing? And iced them out. Regardless, they had great economic financial need. And as Paul made that known, he and his teammates to the people, the Macedonians responded with gusto. The Corinthians got started. The Macedonians were relatively poor. The Corinthians were relatively rich. And Paul called them all to the opportunity to contribute, even those far away. Why? Well, it's not so that the Corinthians would become poor or somehow suffer verse 13, not that they would be hard-pressed. That, that would be the kind of swap that really wouldn't do a lot of good. It would create as many problems as it solved. You know, Corinthians are rel- relatively well-off. The, the, the believers in Jerusalem relatively poor. Well, if, if they got lots and they got little, what have we accomplished? The goal is that other family members are cared for, that they are relieved, the word is there, from their hardship. The goal is a kind of equality. Look at verse 13. Look at verse 14. Most translations say that. The ESV says fairness. And that begs the question, what's equality? What is this kind of economic, financial fairness? That's a very important question, and it's not an easy one either. Now let me start by saying this is not a biblical mandate for socialism. I guess I feel like I need to say that in this time and place. If by that we mean the required redistribution of wealth and resources so everyone has exactly the same. This is not some kind of forced redistribution scheme from the Bible. The purpose of giving is to meet basic needs. It's what we might call communitarianism in the body of Christ. It's looking at ourselves primarily as a family, not as individuals, which is revolutionary in our culture, where we look at the church as a body where everyone has needs and every part matters. That's the tip of the iceberg. We need to go a little deeper. New Testament scholar George Guthrie helps us here, and I quote a bit from him. The concept of patronal reciprocity, that means patron-client, was very important in Paul's world. In that system, a relationship existed between a social superior and a social inferior. The superior, the patron, commits to to meeting the needs of the inferior, the client. Offers protection, offers services, offers benefits. The inferior person, the client, is obligated as a result to honor, to serve, to show gratitude, to be at the disposal of the patron. But what's described here in 2 Corinthians 8 is not the reciprocity of Paul's culture. See, in that culture, there was usually a kind of inequality, the superior, the inferior. But here, Paul appeals to the equality that exists between brothers and sisters in Christ. And he reinforces that with Scripture here. That each follower of Jesus has equal value and that all of our needs matter, even if some of those are culturally influenced. Maybe we need to put this in some language that we understand. The true goal here is not the radical equalizing of bank accounts. In terms of the global church, that would be almost impossible, even if that was the point. 
Rather, the point is equal concern for each other's needs and equal initiative to meet those needs. I'm convinced that that's the fairness, that's the equality that Paul is talking about. That's especially true of those who are in relational or in physical proximity to us. That's also true of those who are connected to us cross-culturally because they're part of our family. Put, put simply, it's not that we're all about demanding fairness for us, it's that we desire fairness for others, that their needs are being met just as much as our needs are being met. The goal is that there be no unmet need. Now that may change in the future. Look at verse 14. Paul says, this is the case now, but there may come a time in which the tables are turned and you need from them. See, in this context, surplus doesn't mean that whatever you happen to have left over after you've spent lavishly on yourself. No, surplus refers to the resources one has after the basic needs in life are met. Here's this divine principle. No one has hoarded surplus. No one has shortage. God actually enforced this at a time prior to Paul's writing to Corinth. Way back in the Old Testament, there's the story of the Israelites wandering around in the wilderness in the desert, and they didn't have any resources. They didn't have food. So God supplied on a daily basis what was called manna so that everyone had enough and no one had too much. After all, it was done again and again, and it spoiled. You couldn't hoard it. Now, in New Testament times and in our day and age today, it's voluntary. It's dependent upon the working of the grace of God in the hearts of believers. And this principle of Paul, it governs how we handle money. No one needs to hoard their material blessings because God provides abundantly. And if those people who lack for basic needs make them known, God has provided other Christians in their abundance to help meet those needs. It's brilliant. And our voluntary response is both seen by God and blessed by God. If you think about it, and I have, God could have given his children all the same exact material resources. He could have done that in our church. He could have done that in our society. He could have done that all across the world, but he didn't. Why? I'm inclined to think that he did so in order to test us in order to see if we will seize the opportunity to truly love him and truly love one another as others have need. Randy Alcorn, again in that Treasure Principle book, says it like this. God distributes wealth unevenly, not because he loves some of his children more than others, but so his children can distribute it to their brothers and sisters on his behalf. Why? Because we have equal value as his image bearers and we have equal value as brothers and sisters in the family of God. How do we live that out? I can think of at least two practical ways that the grace of God can shine through our generosity in ways that reflect almost the very circumstances of this passage. Here's the first. The, fellow needs, the, the needs of fellow believers in our church. Most of you are aware we live in a relatively affluent area, that our economy is still at present humming along. You shouldn't be surprised to know that we still, as we have in the past, have people at Grace, part of our church, who have financial need, maybe related to a job change 
unemployment, a major medical bill, some other circumstance. At Grace, we have something called a deacon fund to help care for our brothers and our sisters in need. We have several deacons who vet every request, who screen the need, who distribute that money temporarily as appropriate, all in ways to try to help that person or those people get back on their feet. I would encourage you to give to that. You know, a portion of your regular giving to gifts and offerings goes to the needs of people within our church family. But if you specifically designate something to the deacon fund, it will go to those in need directly. All around our auditorium here at the little boxes, there are envelopes you can write deacon fund and put whatever cash or check you want there, and it will go to them. Does it matter? You bet it does. One of our members who benefited years ago tells of the valuable lesson for us. They write, after a job loss, we struggled to make ends meet for many years. We got small jobs here and there to try and pay the bills, but often there wasn't enough. Needless to say, we were struggling. At one point, our electricity was cut off, and that's when we reached out to the church for help. And through the deacon's fund, the church helped us get our electricity back on and took care of a couple other bills. We met with some church couples who took a look at our financial situation and gave us some strategies to help us move forward. Things slowly but surely turned around, and as our financial situation improved, we made a point to always direct part of our church offering to the deacon fund. How cool is that? Receiving and then being a blessing. Some of you might say, yeah, but other people might profit from the money that I've earned and worked hard for and inherited. And the answer to that is, perhaps. They're responsible to God for ways that they may have consciously contributed to that need, and they're also responsible to God for how they communicate it. But we need to check our motives too, don't we? Garland writes, stinginess has a way of expressing itself through suspicion of others and rationalizing its tight-fisted ways. Isn't that true? Ouch. Many of us, if we're honest, haven't consciously contributed to our own abundance. And we shouldn't take credit for it all. We've been blessed too. Second way that our generosity can shine through is uh, our Christmas Eve offering. I know you think Christmas is a long way away, but count them up, about 10 weeks. We're part of a three-year commitment to the School of Missiology in Jemena, Chad, where I just was. And the last of those three years comes up this December. We're looking to raise a little over $30,000 to uh, meet our commitment to that. I I'm convinced we can far surpass that. You can give at any time School of Missiology training in Chad. Mark it on your envelope and it will go there. In addition, there's some medical work that we're a part of in Central Africa, in Chad and the Central African Republic. Our brothers from Africa were here just last week. There's a training of nursing or nurses program that has tremendous evangelistic value, as well as meeting the needs of brothers and sisters. There's a pharmacy that needs supplies in the Central African Republic. These connect with our brothers and sisters in a far part of the world with whom we have much in common in the family of God. You can give to those needs. Write medical needs or, or medical Central Africa and your gift will go there. See, these are ways that we can profoundly meet the needs of those in the body of Christ and reflect what 2 Corinthians 8 and 9 teaches us. 
And when we part with our excess, when we part with our abundance, it's some of the most God-honoring, self-serving, self-interested things we can do. And that's not a bad thing. Because when we give, we actually liberate ourselves from the potential handcuffs, from the suffocation that wealth is always seeking to have. And for many of us, as one person once remarked, some of our debt doesn't reveal that we're poor. It just reveals that we're dumb. We still are people of abundance. Alcorn, again in that book, said, nothing makes a journey more difficult than a heavy backpack filled with nice but unnecessary things. Pilgrims travel light. He said even King Solomon knew this. King Solomon learned that affluence didn't satisfy. All it did was give him greater opportunity to chase more mirages. The grace of God, our response of generosity, is a wonderful antidote against the idolatry of money and the collection of stuff. In this passage, Paul invites these Corinthians, he invites us to give in proportion to what we have. To give to the needs of others in God's family, both locally and globally. Why? Because it honors God. Because it reflects really well on the gospel. Because it shows compassion to others. Because it pushes back on what's always seeking to strangle us. How practical, friends, is the word of God. How kind is the grace of God to us. And how lovely is the generosity of God's people when they're captured by the grace of God. God demonstrates his generosity through the generosity of his people. Let's pray. God, these are good words, hard words, challenging words. You dig and you enter into places in our lives that often we want to hide from you. Often areas of confusion or areas of defeat. I pray, God, that your grace would so overwhelm us that we would find victory and delight in living in a way that sees you care for our needs and sees us caring for others' needs by your grace and goodness. Thank you for our church. Thank you for the ways in which this kind of living highlights the gospel, highlights your glory, and works for our good too. What a God. What an opportunity. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.